So today we are in Genesis, we are beginning chapter 45. And this uh, passage that we're beginning today, as I said, the last few weeks, we're kind of in the climax of the Joseph story. And the verses that we're going to look at today are the climax of the climax. (laughs) This is really kind of the pinnacle of the Joseph story. Uh, This is the point where when I'm reading through the book of Genesis or reading through the story of Joseph, when I get to this passage here, I always start bawling (laughs) because it is such a moving and such a powerful story uh, as Joseph uh, discloses to himself, to his brothers, who he actually is. So that's where we are today. But last week we were in the last part of chapter 44. We were we were discussing the events that actually lead up to and trigger what happens in the story that we're looking at today. So look back at that last half of chapter 44 and and uh, let's see, what can we remember that we talked about last week? One thing I got out of it, Rick, uh, I know you were kind of portraying Judah as the kind of but... I kind of flipped around, you know, I'm looking at you know, his sincerity and talked about the willingness to exchange places mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. but as I was looking at perhaps Joseph, you know, being a God in the sense of he interceded to God, and it was ironic that he was interceding for his father, unknowing that the God he was interceding to it was his father too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is unique. And I, it got me to thinking that when I'm interceding for somebody, that God blows that person a lot more than I do. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes yeah. Sometimes I don't think about that. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough world. Yeah. 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 I don't know, robot or something up there with no feeling or no emotion or no no investment in the things that we're praying about. And it's really quite the opposite. Yeah, that's great. What else? The fact that this whole conversation might not have been out in front of everybody. It might have been off the side. Okay. Okay. It, it, it kind of seems like this is a... This is a negotiation between Judah and Joseph, and and he's really possibly the other brothers aren't even certainly they they probably didn't anticipate that Judah was going to step out like he did, and it's possible that initially they didn't even know what was what was being said. Although that's not emphatically clear from the text, it seems like that may be a possibility. What else? What's the whole? What is the whole point of Judas' speech? What is he driving at? What is he? What's he trying to get to as he goes through this whole description of his father and the discussions with his father and the discussions with Joseph and and as he's as he's relaying all that, re, recounting all that for Joseph, what is his point? What is he driving at? Okay. Okay. And so what's he? Okay, it's a plea for mercy, and how is that mercy going to be achieved? Okay, he's going to take Benjamin's place. So, so the whole speech is moving towards that climax we reach there at the end of the chapter, where Judah finally says, "Listen, I have agreed to be surety uh, for my for my brother, and and I I want to take his place. So instead of him being a slave." To you, I will be the slave if you will permit that. I will be the slave, and he can go home to his father. Okay, so that's the whole, the whole thrust. Who is, who is Judah really, in a sense, petitioning for in this plea? Who's really the center of his petition? His father, okay? It's his father, and that's kind of a striking thing because he's asking to be a surety for Benjamin. He's asking to take Benjamin's place. But the one he's really moved about, the one he's really burdened about, the one he's really concerned about, even more so than Benjamin, is his father. Okay? What else did we see? 
Okay, yeah. He's made a pledge and he, he, and he needs to fulfill that pledge. And as we said uh, uh, last week, uh, now it seems it, it becomes clear because both the servant, uh, the, the household steward and Joseph have, have both declined the offer that the brothers have made that they would all be slaves. So, so it's very clear that only one of them is going to be a slave. So now Judah knows that he is free and this is what precipitates his plea. Judah knows that now he's free. He's not, he, he doesn't have to be a slave. So now he's in the position where he can actually negotiate and, and hopefully take Benjamin's place. Uh, what else? Yes. Yeah, it's just getting started. Well, the day before, he spent quite a bit of time because they met at lunch and, and so apparently were there feasting. Well, that's that's why you have a that's why you have a vice president. <laughs> Presumably, he had other people taking care of the things. But yeah, he's he's taking he's devoting a lot of time to this, and understandably so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 It seems like uh, Judy is the one who's stepping forward. He's the one that's really putting his life on the line. But it is clear that these brothers are hanging together now. They all come back together. They're not going to let Benjamin deal with this alone. They all come back together. It's unthinkable to them that any one of them would have stolen the cup. So they are. They are really, at this point, a, very, a cohesive unit. This is a tremendous transformation from, from, uh, from what they were before. These guys have really changed, and Judah has really changed. What else? I just want to add this. And let's remember, because these are just about the single men. These are men with wives. Wives and children, yes. Yes. That's right. There's a lot. There's a lot on the line right here. There's a great deal on the line, yes. One of the things that I mentioned last week is, uh, you know, as we, as we read this plea of Judah, it's it is uh, so uh, poignant, it's so full of passion and emotion, and it's also so eloquent. <laughs> Judah is so just, you know, and, and it seems that his his whole speech there, and we mentioned it's the longest speech in the book of Genesis, but his whole speech there is is so eloquent that. That it just seems to me so clear that that the Holy Spirit is just giving him the words to say, and and as I reflected on that and thought about that, it just it seems so clear that that God knows what Joseph needs to hear, and He moves in the heart of Judah to speak in such a way that Joseph's own heart. Is pierced, and as we read our story, our passage today, we'll see how profoundly moved Joseph is. Now, when I when I say what I did that I, that that Judah is speaking the things that Joseph needed to hear, I, I don't want to imply at all that Joseph was at all reluctant or hesitant uh, to to forgive his brothers and embrace his brothers. I think he was eager to do that, but I think there are certain things that he he just needed to hear. He just needed to know and what we see uh, what we see here in Judah's speech here in chapter 44 is that Judah without knowing it (laughs) is speaking right to Joseph's heart he's speaking to the thing that is of the greatest concern to Joseph and that is their father and uh, although Judah doesn't even know at that point that they that they have the same father. So it just seems <clears throat> so clear to me how the Holy Spirit is just working in this in this whole situation. Anything else you want to mention before we go on? Well, just to kind of reemphasize the transformation of Judah, if you look at it from the other side, you think, well, my father's never cared for me. He's always goes up to me. He's always been his favorite. If my father's gone, I'm probably the leader of the same now. I get rid of Benjamin, that favorite son. That we are, you know, got rid of Joseph, and now we get rid of Benjamin. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the head of the family. Everything's good. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot in that point. From a standpoint, there's a lot of reasons why he could have gone the other direction. Yeah. But it's really a tribute to his 
and, and, and along that same line is, is just the fact that, that the leverage that Judah uses in his speech to Joseph, the leverage that he uses is the very thing that many years before made him bitter and angry and wanted to, made him want to sell Joseph into slavery. That is, the leverage that he uses, the thing that he uses to plead for his father is his father's favoritism towards Benjamin. That's the very thing that filled him with so much hatred and bitterness and, and, uh, and calculation before. And, and he is so transformed now that, 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 is no, that that is no longer an obstacle to him. That's no longer a problem to him. It is his, the means by which he pleads for his father and for his father's life. So it's, it's, it's a remarkable thing that we see in the life of Judah. Yes. Uh, I, I would assume, yeah, I would assume so. <laughs> that weighs pretty heavy on him. And so I, I would assume that that's part of the motivation is we have really wronged Dad. And of course, at one point, I didn't bother him. When they came back and showed Dad the robe and, and, and Dad was weeping and mourning, you know, they just stood by and, you know, tried to comfort him, it says, you know, and you could see the hypocrisy. But now, now there's still apparently some of that sense of guilt, but it's having a totally different effect because they're changed men. Well, so. I think along the line that Jacob has not stopped grieving for Joseph. No, no. And so that's yeah. what makes them know that yeah. they know the unshadowed doubt that, that if Benjamin doesn't come back that it will be yes. the yeah. final problem. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. So our grown up, they had family. So, and they've grown up. They, they matured. As somebody posted on uh, Facebook yesterday, you, you have no choice about growing older, but you do have a choice about growing up. <laughs> so, yeah. It is really interesting the things that don't get said in this whole story by these various parties to the story. And we're going to point that out at a couple points today. A couple things that have not been said that finally today, in today's passage, actually gets said for the first time. Okay, well, let's pick it up then. Because we have much to cover and I'm only going to try, I'm going to do the best I can with what we've got. And uh, if we run out of time, we'll just pick up and do the rest of the passage next week. But, <clears throat> but I'd like to, <clears throat> excuse me, try to cover the first 15 verses of chapter 45. So it begins, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. So you shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. 
There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Then he changes and he begins to talk to his brothers again. He says, Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now, you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And thus you must, uh, excuse me, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. <clears throat> well, as I, as I was working on this lesson this week, I just kept thinking, this is the... This is one of those places in Scripture where you almost feel like it's better not to say anything. <laughs> it's better just to sit and read this story and just absorb it at a visceral level. I think it's probably the greatest understatement in the entire Bible. And he says, after he says, he's Joseph and I'm still, I am Joseph and my father's still alive. And brothers did not answer him, but they were dismayed. Yeah. That's got to be one of the greatest understatements. Yeah. yeah. Two thoughts are going through my mind, one of which is, will he kill us? And then the second one is, now we've got to tell that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that, but you're jumping ahead of the first two verses. <laughs> so, what we have here at the outset is Joseph is unable to control himself. And I want you to think about the power of the emotions that this guy is feeling at this point. This is a guy who, as we have studied this story, and we have been on it now for many, many, many weeks, this is a guy whose life and character epitomizes self-control. Right? This is a guy who, over and over again, has demonstrated he's a man who knows what's right, and he's going to do what's right no matter what he's feeling. This is a guy that stood up to the daily enticements of Potiphar's wife. This is a guy who has had many opportunities to take credit for things that God has done in his life and he has refused to do that and he has always given the credit to God. This is a guy who when his brothers first showed up, now probably as much as a year earlier from our story today, when his brothers first showed up, he could have blown the whole thing right there. This is a guy with remarkable self-control. The guy that I wish I had the kind of self-control this guy has. Okay, This is a guy with remarkable self-control. But these emotions that he's feeling now are absolutely overwhelming. It is a tide of emotion, a dam of emotions or, uh, that have been dammed up now for over 20 years. And now it's reached a point where it's safe to release them. And I have to ask myself, what has happened? What has happened that Joseph now knows that he can let these emotions go? And it's pretty clear what it is. It's Judah's speech, isn't it? It's Judah's speech that brings Joseph to the point where the dam breaks and the emotions just come rushing out. It's the realization that that man who's standing in front of him right now, who once was that calculating manipulator who would sell a brother into slavery in Egypt, is now offering to put himself on the line and become a slave. And Joseph knows what that means because he has been one. Is willing to be a slave so that the father that both that man and Joseph loves passionately will live. And Joseph sees in the heart of Judah the same love that Joseph feels for Jacob. And it just breaks the dam, and the emotions come rushing out. And it says he cries out to have all the Egyptians leave the room. Now, I, I don't know 
all the reasons why. And, you know, I don't think Joseph was doing a lot of analyzing at this point. I think he was flying kind of by the seat of his pants at this point. But but I think there's probably a couple things going on there. One is that that Joseph is the ruler of all Egypt and he has all these underlings under him. And and so, you know, just culturally and socially and politically, it's probably not the most, you know, best situation to, to have them seeing him fall apart. OK, so he's got to get them out of the room. So I imagine that's part of what's going on. The other part of it is what's about to take place here is family business. It's nobody else's business. This is family business. Got to get everybody out of here because this is family business. And and what we see with Joseph, what we see with Joseph is that is that the family is paramount to him. The family is everything to him. His whole job, everything he does, everything is related to the family. The family has first place, and so he hustles all the Egyptians out of the room and then he's free and he just lets it all hang out. Of course, he doesn't, you know, the idea is get the Egyptians out of the room so they don't so they don't see him fall apart. But uh, doesn't work, does it? (laughs) Because when he finally lets it go, he can't control it. And it is overwhelming and it is so loud that everybody hears anyway. That the Egyptians hear it and and the report about it gets to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's family. Everybody knows that Zaphonaphtaneh is falling apart. They don't know why. They don't know what's going on. They just hear this loud, wailing cry. And from the way the text is written, I get the picture that he doesn't say anything for a bit, for a time. He's just crying. He's just weeping because it says uh, it, it talks about him weeping there in verse two. And then after that, it says in verse three, then Joseph said to his brothers. And so I get the picture that there's this time of weeping where he's just, you know, and his brothers are just standing there watching this great, powerful Zaphonath Panea just bawling like crazy, loudly wailing in front of them. Now. Speaking as a guy, <laughs> that's pretty freaky. You guys, you guys know what it's like when your wife is crying and you don't know why? <laughs> Not much scarier than that, is it? When we see our wives crying and we don't know why they're crying. You know, it's almost as freaky as when they're crying. We do know why they're crying. <laughs> but so here's these guys and they're watching Joseph just letting it all hang out. And they just and they're just I, I can't imagine the, the sense of bewilderment. And fear, and uh, you know what? What is? I mean, they they they've had so much interaction with this guy, and the day before they had this big feast, and there was all this partying, and now there's the accusation about them stealing his his divining cup, and you know, and it's just such a complicated guy, and there's such a complicated relationship here already, and they don't know who this guy is except he's a great Zaphnapanea, the ruler of Egypt, and 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 then all of a sudden the guy's just standing in front of him, just bawling his eyes out. I don't know what Judah's thinking at this point. And then he says, I am Joseph. It's the words that they never thought they'd hear. Never did they ever imagine that they would ever hear those words from anyone. They've long since given up for dead and are waiting, as Reuben says, for the reckoning for his blood. And now this guy who just can barely speak through his tears says to them, I am Joseph. And he speaks the name which shall not be named. You notice that? His brothers... His father have not named his name in 22 years. They could not bring themselves to say Joseph. In all those years and in all that interaction of the brothers with Zaphonath Paneah, 
you know, all their talk about, yeah, we have this other brother and he's no, he is no longer. And, you know, and they, they never said Joseph. The name which shall not be named. And now Joseph is named that name which shall not be named. And just naming the name. Why, why has the name not been named? Why have they not spoken the name? Why have they avoided using the name of Joseph? Because somehow, if you don't use his name, somehow it keeps it emotionally over here somewhere, distant. But if I name the name, if I say Joseph, then it makes it so personal and so real and it makes my crime so horrific because there's actually a name to it. And so they've avoided for all these years naming the name of Joseph. And now it's named. I am Joseph. And, and he says... Immediately then he says, is my father still alive? Now, this is kind of an, it's kind of an interesting thing for Joseph to say at this point, right? I mean, he's just heard Judah's speech. It's, he knows the answer to the question. So why does he ask the question? And... Not only does he know the answer to the question, why does he ask the question? He asks the question, he doesn't get any answer. But he goes on in his speech back to the brothers. He goes on and talks with them in full knowledge that his dad is still alive. And so this is what you need to do since dad is still alive. But he never got that answer. But he already knew his dad was alive. So why does he even say this? Well, I don't think it's a... Uh, I don't think it's a question. I think it's just... I just think it's the emotion coming out. You see, he's already asked this question before. You know, when his brother showed up the day before. And, and one of the first things he said is, is your aged father still alive? You know, it's a very polite, proper thing you would do under those circumstances, Right? Kind of like when we meet each other in the hall here and out in the hallway and we say, how are you doing? Okay. You know, it's just the polite thing to do. Okay. I don't have any objection with us doing that. It's just the polite way we do things. But there are other times when we ask how somebody's doing when it's just a gut, visceral question, isn't it? When we just have so much invested in it that it just comes out of us. And that's what's happening here with Judah. He's, he's just, I mean, with the Joseph, is, is, is now he gets to ask the question the way he wanted to ask it in the first place. Now he gets to ask the question from the heart of a son rather than just simply as a political nicety or cultural nicety. He gets to ask it as the son of Jacob. And so he says, is my father still alive? Now, his brothers, they're just, they're just standing there and they're just, they're just blown away. Yeah. It's just, we can try to put ourselves in their shoes and, and kind of imagine what's going on here, but but it's 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 just very hard to get a total grip on how these brothers are thinking at this split second in time. <laughs> Joseph, from the start of the famine, Joseph at least had time to adjust to the concept that he might see his brother. Yeah. But the brothers, especially in this environment, yeah. as you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, this, is, this is totally out of the blue. Totally out of the blue to them. A few, you know, a few moments before, before Judah started his speech, you know, there's, there's no clue. They, they're in trouble. Benjamin's been accused of stealing this cup, which is supposedly the divining cup. And, you know, and there's all this, all this fear and dread and we're going to be killed or we're going to be 
for, we're going to be slaves, you know, and there's all this stuff that's been going on for the last hour or so, and now all of a sudden they get hit with this. This is Joseph. Yeah, Gary. Another thing about it is that the first words that he says to him are in their tongue. Yes, yeah. Which, which he makes a point of here later. But he's now speaking to them in Hebrew. And and so his brothers, Joseph asks the question, but his brothers, they are in, unable, they're, not, they're unable to respond. They can't answer. And they can't answer because it says they are dismayed at his presence or they're dismayed at his, at his face. And the word there means they're terrified. They're terrified. Now, you have to realize it, it's not just like they kind of ran into Joseph on the road there somewhere in Canaan and found out he was still alive. Okay. They are standing in the palace of the guy who calls himself the father of Pharaoh. They are standing in this palace in all this splendor and this powerful guy who is, whose, whose daily decision is whether people will live or die. Who gets to eat and who doesn't get to eat? That's what he decides every day. He does this for a living. And he has all these attendants and all these soldiers and everybody around him and his life is guarded and he's you know, and he has all these interpreters and assistants and you know, and there's all this what he calls later in the in the passage splendor. All his splendor. You know, he's Doubtless, regally dressed. <laughs> Something probably far more spectacular than the, than the regal robe his father had made for him back in Canaan. There's all this environment of the power and the prestige of the office of vizier of Egypt that they're looking at. <clears throat> but they're also now looking at the man against whom they had committed the crime of enslaving him. And and I don't have much doubt that at this point they're hoping, I hope this isn't true. <laughs> I hope this guy is not Joseph. But as I was thinking about that yesterday, I was thinking that maybe also they were hoping it is true. Particularly Judah. You know, I wonder if Judah in all his terror and all his fear and everything was thinking, if it's true, we can clear this thing up. If he's alive, I can go back and tell Dad he's alive. He said, I don't think they dreaded going back and telling Dad at this point because now they've come to grips with their sin and now they've come to grips with things and now the main thing is Dad's well-being. That's the main thing to them. And I have no doubt they're scared for their lives at this point. But I, but I still just wonder if maybe in that split second there wasn't also the thought, well, now we can get this worked out because he's still alive. <clears throat> well, they don't answer him. They're standing there and they're staring at him and, you know, they're just... You know, cats got their tongue. They just, you know, and and Joseph realizes at this point, I'm not getting through to these guys. <laughs> I'm not getting through. They don't believe me. Now, I don't know whether they believed him or not, but it's clear that Joseph thinks they're not believing me. <laughs> He's done such a good job of concealing it. Now he thinks maybe I, I'm going to have to do a little more. So what does he tell them to do? Come closer. Come closer. And so they do. They come closer and I'm sure it's not exactly what they wanted to do at that moment, but they come closer. And and then Joseph says to him again more emphatically, I am your brother Joseph. 
whom you sold into Egypt. And and I think we have to understand how Joseph is saying that. That is not an accusation. That's an identification. He's not saying that to accuse them. He's saying that so they will know who he is. Because there are only 11 people who know that Joseph was sold into Egypt. Maybe ten. Ten. Why ten? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yes, yeah. Ten. Excuse me. Ten. No, no, there's ten. There's, yeah, there's ten. The ten other brothers and Joseph makes eleven. Yeah, yeah. So there's eleven. Boy, you messed my math up there. (laughs) So there's eleven of them. There's a ten and there's Joseph. Nobody else knows. Other than the slave traders. Nobody else knows. So this is the way that Joseph proves to them who he is. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now he has once again named the name that shall not be named. (laughs) But he's gone one step further and he's named the sin that shall not be named. They never said this, have they? In all their talks with Dad, and all their talks with Zaphnathaniah, all, you know, all those discussions, it was never said we sold our brother into slavery. We sold our brother into Egypt. Nobody ever said that. There were all these euphemisms. He is no more, you know, or he is dead, you know, or you know, so there are all these euphemisms for what actually happened. But Joseph names the sin which shall not be named. And he does not do it to accuse his brothers, but he does it in order that his brothers might know who he is, in order that they might experience his forgiveness and his grace. Because until they know who he is, they cannot know his forgiveness. Now, I don't know what things are going to be like when I see Christ. I don't know what I'm going to say and I don't know what he's going to say. But I, as, I, as I thought about this story this week, as I was meditating on it, I was just thinking, what is it going to be like when I see Jesus? You see, un- until, until we could actually name the crime, until we could actually name the sin here, Joseph's brothers cannot know the fullness of forgiveness. And so, Joseph's naming of the sin, you sold me into Egypt. His naming of the sin is what facilitates the brothers knowing that they are forgiven and knowing the magnitude and the scale and the wonder of their forgiveness. And, and I just wonder when I see Christ for the first time if there's not going to be just a moment in which I will realize for just a moment the magnitudes of my crimes against him. So that when he then says, do not grieve or be angry, that I will know how great is his love and how great is his mercy and how great is his grace. And I wonder how much I wonder how much in our in this present life we rob ourselves of the of the 
blessing of knowing the forgiveness of God because we are so reluctant to name our sins. We have those things in our life and we know they're not right and we kind of we, we have euphemisms for them. We have all these ways we talk about them, but we don't name them. And we don't own the extent of the crime. But if we could just bring ourselves to name them, when we come to God in confession, instead of using euphemisms for all the stuff we've done today, if we could just say, you know, God, today I... And just name it. And today I... And just name it. And in naming it, then we come to grasp the magnitude of His grace. Now, Joseph... says to his brothers, he, he hurries right on. He doesn't stop there. You notice that? He doesn't stop there on, you sold me into Egypt. He says, um, uh, he says there, uh, I am Joseph. Uh, he says, uh, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or be angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And now we begin to see Joseph's perspective. We see what makes it possible for Joseph to forgive his brothers. What makes it possible for Joseph to forgive his brothers is he sees the bigger picture. Or he sees the the other world, if you will. He sees what his brothers cannot see, what his brothers have not seen. And he's been seeing it now for many years. He's been seeing it with eyes of faith up till now. But now he's actually seeing it in reality. He is seeing that though his brothers meant evil to him and sold him into Egypt as a slave, though his brothers did that, that actually God was working through their evil To save lives. And and so as I contemplate that, and then I go back to to what I was just talking about a minute ago about what's it going to be like when we first see Christ. And 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 it's at this point that I begin to understand the charges that were made against the Apostle Paul. Because not only when I, stand, do I, when I stand before Christ is He going to say, do not grieve or be angry, but He's also going to say, I have turned your sin to my glory. And so then naturally we say at that point, well, why not sin more so that grace may abound, right? <laughs> That's where Romans comes in. That's why we're going to Romans next. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But that is the Christian theology. That God not only defeats evil, He transforms it. And it is evil, it is wicked, and it will be punished. Either individually or in Christ, sin will be punished. But the power of the Christian theology is that all evil will be turned to the glory of God. And Joseph says, now that you're forgiven, you don't have to grieve and you don't have to be angry with yourselves because now you're forgiven. And now you need to see things from the way I see things and the way they really are. And that is that God sent me before you to preserve life. Because this famine has gone on for two years and it's going to go on for five more years and there's not going to be any plowing or any harvesting. And he says, so then he says it again. So God sent me before you. And then he uses some interesting terms. He says, in order to preserve for you a remnant and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And what we have here in this verse is the seed of 
of what becomes an important theological principle as we move on through the scriptures. And that's the concept of a remnant. And, and he says, he says God was, what God was doing when you were selling me into slavery, what God was doing was he was preserving for you. <laughs> You're sinning in selling him into slavery and God is working your salvation through your sin. And he is preserving a remnant. You are the remnant that he is preserving and he's going to keep you alive through a great deliverance. And so this concept of a remnant and the the theological concept of the remnant is that God preserves a small group in a great catastrophe that he preserves a small group for his glory and for his purposes. And that when he preserves them, he shows them a great deliverance. Now, the first example that we have of that in Scripture, of course, is Noah and the flood. Right? A great catastrophe and a small remnant preserved by a great deliverance. The ultimate example, we'll come back to Romans again, is in Romans chapter 11, isn't it not? That God has preserved a small remnant among the Jews so that in the end He could do this really great, glorious thing. Romans chapter 11. And when Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 11, as he talks about this remnant of Jews that God has preserved and then ultimately from that remnant He's going to save the whole nation and, 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 and through this whole thing of Him saving them and then going over here and working with the Gentiles and then the Jews become jealous of the Gentiles and, and, you know, and there's all this stuff going on back and forth in Romans chapter 11 and it becomes so complex and so overwhelming until we realize towards the end of Romans chapter 11 that this is all for the greater glory of God and then, and then Paul just breaks out into this hymn of praise for God that we see in those last verses of Romans chapter 11 where he says, oh, God is so awesome. He is so great. He had all this plan from the outset. Do you think, uh, I mean, you know, I see the word written there, I think, was Joseph figured out the plan. And then most of the remnant stuff is in the future. Yes. Like when they would get carved off the back yes. and go yes. and save the Yes. 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 You know, I just wonder if he knew, you know, if his father had told him and Abraham had told him, you know, Abraham's vision where God said you're going to go in a foreign land and be captives for a long time. Yes. I wonder if he knew that. I mean, he probably knew this because he told that. Uh, uh, yeah. He, there's yeah. plenty of time in prison and around the country. <laughs> this is. Well, you may, he, pro- he may have had at least a sketch of the idea. And yeah. Probably coming to fulfillment now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it. But yeah, he probably had at least some sketch of a sense of that. Uh, obviously, the full dimension of that get you know get the meat put on it as we go on through Scripture and and go through the minor pro- major prophets and minor prophets and so that sort of thing. But he might not. Said, yeah, I'm going to invite you here to do the whole story when you're going to be slaves. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so at any rate, Joseph has got this greater picture. And, and then once again, for the third time, he tells them, God sent Verse 8, God sent you, sent me. God sent me down here. And he's just talked about this great deliverance. He says he's, he's doing this so he might keep you alive through a great deliverance. Now, therefore, God, you did not send me here, but God. So now he's just kind of blocking them out entirely. This really had nothing to do with you guys. This is all about God. And then he describes the great deliverance that Joseph himself has experienced. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, meaning I am Pharaoh's confidant, his advisor, the one Pharaoh looks up to. Okay? He has made me a father to Pharaoh and, ru- and lord of his household and ruler of all the land of Egypt. And as I was reading that verse this week, I just, I had to laugh. I just had to laugh. Because I thought, is God not so cool? This is no meager, little deliverance. God just goes overboard. When, when it comes to delivering Joseph, you know, he didn't just, you know, he didn't just work it out so Joseph, Joseph could escape from slavery. 
Or he didn't just work it out so Joseph somehow managed to break out of jail, you know, like Peter did in Acts. <laughs> Although that was pretty spectacular, too, the way it happened. You know, he didn't just make it so that Joseph could, you know, God just went overboard. You know, it's, it's just kind of like God said, suddenly show you what I can do. <laughs> I could make you a father to Pharaoh. And Lord over all his house. And, oh, let me throw in Egypt while I'm at it. The extravagance of the deliverance that Joseph experiences is mind-boggling, is it not? And so, as I, as I think about the story, and this is, we'll have to stop here today, and we'll pick up the rest of this passage next week, but... As I think about this, I have to ask myself, where are you in the story of Joseph? Where am I in the story of Joseph? Am I just there at Gotham and my brothers are pushing and shoving me around and whatever? Or, or, am, I in the, or am I in the pit stripped of my garment? Am I fearing death? Or, you know, where am I in the story of Joseph? Am I... Have I just been pulled up out of the pit and now I'm being sold into slavery? Am I on the auction block in Egypt? Where am I in the story of Joseph? Am I a new slave in Potiphar's house, bewildered, a foreign place, a foreign language, a foreign culture, and a slave? Have I managed to kind of pull myself up by my own bootstraps? I'm doing okay under my present difficult circumstances and you know so I'm kind of getting along where am I in the story of Joseph am I betrayed by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison where am I in the story of Joseph am I languishing in prison forgotten by all those who could possibly help me for years I don't know where you are in your story of Joseph. But let me tell you something about the end of it. It's going to be extravagant. It is going to be so extravagant it will bother your mind. Well, let's pick up the story next week.